Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Those famous words of Psalm 26, verse 8, describes, I'm sure, the gladness that fills each of our hearts this morning with the opportunity and the privilege to assemble and together in the name of God to offer worship, and in, in fact, unto Him. As always, we're delighted, as was mentioned earlier by Brother Allen in the announcements, with our membership and the visitors who've come our way. And it's our desire that our worship indeed would truly be that which is described in the New Testament. And interestingly enough, as you can tell in the title of the lesson, that'll be a portion of that which will be our consideration this morning. In fact, as you come to the next slide, it is a bit of a reminder actually, a reminder about some of the features that we noticed last Lord's Day morning. We today find ourselves in part two in a series of lessons that touch the subject of that which began last Lord's Day morning. You may remember then, we gave our consideration to what it is that the New Testament has to say about the matter of worship. The church is a worshiping body, a group of people overflowing with joy and presentation involving that which the Bible calls worship. We notice the definition of worship, acts of reverence directed to God. And we found the exposition of that was so different than often is the case concerning the human family. Worship is not entertainment for us. It's not a matter of social convenience for us. It's not an issue that seeks to lift high the matter of your preferences or mine. It is acts of reverence directed to God. As we drew that lesson to a close, we did proceed to ask this question. What are those acts, A-C-T-S, that in fact is the first word in that definition? What are they? Has the Word of God identified what those acceptable acts are? Or has God left that to your and my discretion? I think we understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It is the case then that the Bible... The inspired Word of God that it is has much to say about those acts. And I would invite us to consider that consideration today. You may have noted in the lesson text, Romans 1 verses 24 and 25, and really only 20 verse 25 is the immediate matter for us at this moment in the lesson today. Notice there that Paul, as he made this tremendous statement, he made reference to, some who in fact had done what ought never to have been done. They worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The human family has a tendency to turn its attention to what it can touch and see and feel. And yet Paul said that those of the Gentile world had often erred in that way. They'd worshiped what God made rather than God Himself. And today, lest we fall into an error or a mistake along that line, let's give some thought to a lesson entitled, Not Worshiping the Creature. So as we think about then worshiping God, let's come to our next slide for consideration, which is this one. These acts of acceptable worship, two comments are immediately in order for you and for me for vital consideration. These comments being the two at the top of that slide. If you and I realize the greatness of God, 
the true nature of His awesomeness, His omnipotence, His omniscience. It should be our desire then to worship Him only in that way that He has directed and described. What are then the proper ways? The first thing that should perhaps be noted is, it isn't determined and decided by your emotional response in mind. As often as it has happened, man tends to be moved and compelled by emotion, doesn't he? If something excites his emotion, he often thinks it's bound to be right. But yet in Romans 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, calling to their mind features that still are so pressing. Didn't Paul begin that by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Immediately, Paul made respect then. He made a statement of recognition about some who had great zeal, eager, enthusiastic, devoted, dedicated, and committed. They were indeed, but he says their zeal is not motivated by proper knowledge. It isn't motivated by the characteristic of truth. And thus, Paul says they have erred. Today, that kind of sentiment is still so vital just because an immersed person is overwhelmed with emotion or he feels as if his heart is thoroughly engrossed in something does not mean that it's right. It still rings with such power, doesn't it? Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You and I remember well that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14, 12. So indeed, we can't just go by feelings, suppositions, or emotion. You'll notice that that thought takes us to the preeminent passage from the lips of the Lord Himself. In John 4, verse 24, Jesus, forever determined, God's the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What then are those acts that are portions and parts of this truthful worship? Let's look at the first one. You and I find all throughout the Word of God such a heightened consideration and a vital importance attached to the matter of prayer. Please think with me for a few moments about not only the place of prayer, but the place of prayer in public assembly, the place of prayer in public worship. You well know with me how frequently we find faithful individuals of the Bible turning their attention to prayer. I've asked you at the outset just to think about the church as a whole. In Acts 2 verse 42, on the very day the church began, there the text says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. From the very first day onward, the church has been a body of believers for which prayer has been preeminently important. You'll notice that as we reflect upon then the attribute of prayer, some of these features immediately come before us. It's a bit interesting, isn't it, to notice how often the inspired New Testament writers speak of the community prayer, the collective prayer of the church of our Lord. We might well begin in Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul admonished the church in Colossae, pray for us. Paul requested their prayers 
And you'll notice he specifically in that included, pray for us. Prayer that would involve safety. Prayer that would involve the success of the gospel. Prayer that would involve the attribute of their operation of sending forth the blessed message of truth. In the very next verse, he went on to identify continual prayer as it related to the nature of the work of those missionary efforts. You'll notice that other passages might be listed in light of that one as well. In that passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1, here to the church at Thessalonica, Paul again said, Brethren, finally pray for us. One more time. An encouragement, a request for their prayers. You'll notice that he even included some special things. Pray for us that the Word of God might have free course and be glorified even as it is in you. As Paul made statement about the attribute of their prayer, might you and I think today about the exquisite blessing that corresponds to prayer. Often in our assemblies on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings, a number of prayers are offered. As you and I think about those prayers, they really are essential components of our worship. Not to be taken lightly, not to be in fact looked upon as something to get past, to get on to the next element. In prayer, you and I shall find in a moment, the Word of God has a great deal to say about the nature of how they're to be offered. Let's move in the direction then of discussing that powerful attribute of Hebrews 4. In the very last verse of that chapter, we have this monumental statement. Again, as it relates to prayer, think about this presentation. Let us come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That adverb, boldly, identifies a strong element of confidence that can characterize your prayer life and mine, and even the collective way in which we pray together. Come boldly into the throne of grace. That bold approach is, of course, by virtue of the mediatorial powers of Christ. Perhaps you'll notice then that these next comments are so challenging. How is that prayer to be offered? When you and I pray personally or in public as we've done already today, prayer should be offered in faith. Jesus, did He not say in Matthew 22, verse 21, as He spoke to those disciples on that occasion, Whatsoever ye ask, believing, ye shall receive. The Lord made no promise to them that they would receive anything if they didn't ask it with confidence they'd receive it. Your prayer and mine should be asked with a degree of assurance, of confidence, always trusting that God's will now would be done. But in fact, you and I can see, taking that to the text of James 1, verses 5 and following, James, as he spoke there about the blessing of wisdom, he asserted, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But then he made statement about the way in which that petition should be asked. To ask wisdom of God, he then identified it like this. But let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord if he asks in a wavering character. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you and I then doubt, if we do not have confidence that God can supply in response to that prayer, then we need to revisit the degree of our faithfulness. 
let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Not only is prayer to be asked in faith, we are also told and reminded of this. What about the character of my life as one supposedly involved in prayer? You and I find verses like these, John 9, 31. We realize there that the text says, We know that God heareth not sinners, but to that man who worshipeth and keepeth his commandments, him he heareth. If my life transgresses God's will overtly, habitually and ritually, I shouldn't expect God to have any hearing to my prayer. I shouldn't expect He'll answer that thing. Didn't Peter say it like this in 1 Peter 3.12? The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That person then who lives in wickedness, that person who lives distanced and separated from God and does so by purposeful choice, he may bow his head in prayer, but God makes no promise to respond to that prayer. Doesn't that highlight the faithfulness and the kind of life you and I should lead if we expect God to have a hearing ear to our prayer? It's amazing when you and I then think of what statement that makes about the kind of person that should be gathered. When I come together to worship, I should desire that all is well and I can petition God appropriately and rightly and feel confident that He will answer that prayer. Not only that, you might appreciate that there are more things the Bible has to say for your and my consideration relative to this subject of prayer. From the top of this slide... What things are we to pray for? Surely a large list here could be extracted based on various texts in the Bible. I've selected but a very, very few. You'll notice among them, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, I will that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he became specific for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You and I know well that those in high places governmentally can have a large impact upon the everyday life of Christians, the everyday life of the church. Paul says there we should pray for all men. That would certainly include those that are ill, those that are suffering great difficulties and burdens and oppressions, those tremendously afflicted, but certainly also governmental leaders. We've prayed for those of that list even this morning already. Isn't it beautiful to consider passages like 2 Thessalonians 3.1? We noted that text earlier. Pray that the Word of God might have free course that our nation might turn its attention as a people to this book, that men and women would live by virtue of it, appreciating its respectfulness and power. You might also notice the way in which that touches the character of missionaries, either here or abroad, that God's Word might have free course. Philippians 4, 6, what a powerful and very uplifting statement for all of us. Aren't we... Aren't we encouraged and reminded that we should have an attitude of prayer in thanksgiving and let our requests be made known unto God. We've done that this morning. I hope that we can reflect then as we come to the last few comments about prayer and think of it 
is such a tremendous statement from 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 15 of that chapter says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. I would use this as an opportune time to ask myself as well as all of us who are hearing the sound of my voice, what is the approach you and I make to prayer? While the prayer is being offered, are you playing with a kid on the seat in front of you? Are you passing notes or playing games with your mouth with, again, someone a few pews in front? Are you and I trying, on the other hand, to focus on the words being stated, thinking about the attribute and the matter that's being presented unto God? May we remember that there's a gentleman leading the prayer, but it's my prayer. I should be praying along with him. I should, in fact, be such that the very sentiments he expresses should be my own. No wonder in light of that, in 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Paul makes this statement, that the attribute, the characteristic of that prayer should be such that upon its completion, I should be able to say amen. That word amen means, Lord, let it be or so be it. That is to say, I am in agreement with what he said. Again, prayer is a serious matter, isn't it? If it's true, and we've learned earlier, that God makes no promise to hear the prayers of those that aren't His faithful children. What about those that are, but they treat prayer frivolously, trivially, unimportantly. They play through the prayer. Well, certainly we realize how different that is from the way Paul looked upon prayer. To the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 18, 1, that men ought always to pray and not to faint? Prayer, when you and I pray together, it should be a powerful, powerful part of that which is our worship. Maybe one or two final thoughts. Prayer is, of course, addressed to God, and Jesus has given us a colossal presentation. In Matthew chapter 6, you and I perhaps remember well how often we've studied it, read it, looked upon it. Jesus, as He taught His own disciples to pray, He did it like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What a brief prayer. One of the first things we learn, prayers don't have to be long. Total of that prayer is 69 words. Probably it could be uttered in less than a minute. 69 words, and yet look at what the Lord included in it. First, there's an address in respect unto God. Hallowed be thy name. There's a highlight of spiritual things. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It'd be entirely right then to include sentiments not unlike that one in our prayer, to pray that God's will would always be done. You'll notice included in that prayer is for our own personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you and I thank God for the food we enjoy? Do we thank Him for the nice house we're able to, again, enjoy, the warmth and comfort that's therein? Do we thank Him for the opportunity to assemble with those of like precious faith? You'll notice He also said, lead us not into temptation. Do you and I pray every morning, God, help me today to have the wisdom 
to see what it is the devil's trying to do to me. And that I might have the truth of thy word at hand so that I can avoid the pitfalls and the dangers. We do learn in Psalm 119, verse number 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Do you and I pray, God, help me to remember the teaching of your word. Help me to put it in memory, to remember it when I need it. It'd be entirely right to pray such things. Perhaps you'll notice the last couple of thoughts. May we always remember that Jesus did say in John 16 that the prayer should be asked in His name. Whatever you ask in my name, thus as we close the prayer, it's a special thing to say through Christ or in Christ or we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord for He is the one that allows us access to God. He is the one that is our mediator and through whom we can approach our Heavenly Father. It is true we've learned that according to Paul's famous statements in 1 Timothy 2, his inspired statements, we know that it's God's will that a male, a gentleman, lead those public prayers. And as you and I give our attention to what the Bible has to say about prayer, isn't it rich then to think about how often Paul was thankful for the prayers of others? Paul asked others to pray for him. Sometimes you and I ask the congregation to pray for us. There isn't anything wrong with that. If you and I are facing a great decision, a great matter of tumult or turmoil in life, it'd be right to inquire of our brothers and our sisters, remember me in prayer this week, please. I need them. I trust that as we've reflected for a few minutes on prayer, we've been reminded its station and worship is very important. And God is honored and pleased when we pray to Him as the New Testament describes. These subjects of prayer maybe bring us to another element in worship. For you see, prayer isn't the only one. What about that which is known as the contribution? The word you and I often call it. We might begin this particular discussion of our lesson today by commenting, there have been through the centuries some who have felt money has no place in worship. God is higher than that. He is more worthy than that. Money is just a matter for humanity. I hope that as we study some passages over the next few moments that that kind of thought might be put far from us if it's ever crossed our mind. To give something to God is a vital part and has always been, isn't it, of the subject of approaching Him. You might even remember Abraham in Genesis 14 offered something to God, something tangible, something physical. After he enjoyed victory over the battle of the kings there in Genesis 14, he met Melchizedek and through him offered to Melchizedek the physical spoils of that which he had obtained in victory. Notice he offered something physical. Now, it certainly would be fair to say that God wants us to offer all to Him. That includes your talents and mine, your abilities and mine, the fervor of our spirit and heart. In Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, as we begin that consideration, giving all of myself to God, 
Notice what that includes. Does it include financial things? Does it include monetary matters? I would invite you to notice, even in the law of Moses, as we revisit scenes ancient from your perspective and mine today, in Exodus chapter 30, God expressly commanded the people of Israel under that ancient day that they were to pay a tabernacle tax. When they came, they were to pay a half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for the maintenance, the upkeep, the accomplishment of God's will through the priesthood. There was a matter of money involved even then. Later in the Old Testament, we remember that in fact a collection was made as they entered the temple, somewhat later under the days of the kings and afterward. I suppose you and I then are quickly ready to turn our attention to the New Testament. You and I know that we live beneath the blessed gospel of this era. What then does those 27 books have to say about this subject? I would invite you first of all to notice 1 Corinthians 16.2. As Paul addressed the church in Corinth, to them he had these rather compelling, rather direct, and rather straightforward comments. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. There are several things about that that are worthy of very immediate reflection. First, the first day of the week. God has authorized this collection to be made on Sunday, no other day of the week, when you and I come together. The specialness of that is then seen when he says it this way. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you. There isn't to be one or two giving for all of us. It's every one of us give, and furthermore, as we have been prospered. That requires an element of judgment on your part and mine, doesn't it? To reflect upon and to think about the degree to which God has prospered me in this past week. And then my giving should be reflective of that degree of prospering. That highlights, among other things, doesn't it? Sentiments like these. Notice that Paul said that there be no gatherings when I come. You and I realize that when this collection is made, it's placed in a treasury that the New Testament authorizes, the treasury of the Pippin Church of Christ. And then that money is used for the purposes set forth in the work of the New Testament. Notice that there be no gatherings when I come. As soon as a need arises, our elders don't have to come knock door knocking to you and me and say, we suddenly have this matter and we need funds because we've already given to make that a reality. And we do that every first day of the week as we give according to the way we've been prospered. Doesn't it highlight that this too is a part of worship? Essential, important, vital, Maybe those comments bring us to this appreciation. And it is very interesting to hear Jesus say it like this in Luke 6, 38. When you and I think about the way God has been so good to us, Jesus highlighted it like this. He spoke in that passage that, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Now that immediately sounds like an interesting thing. If you and I give, God will ensure that you and I are provided for. But the Lord wasn't finished with that verse. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, shaken together, pressed down and overflowing. 
I learned something interesting in that verse, just as we all do. The surest way to make myself poor is to be stingy with God. He will give back to me far, far more than I ever give to Him. I like to visualize that verse. Think about if you have a jar. What would you do to put the most in that jar? Well, you wouldn't put sand in it first. You'd put big rocks in it first. But then you'd put littler pebbles because you could shake it around and some of them would fit. And then you'd put sand on top of that because, again, you could shake it around and make it fit. But if you put the sand in first, you'll never get the big rocks in it. God says through that passage we just noted that He will return and give to you and me just in a way like that, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing is the way God will bless you and me. It is true, and you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, that there are some statements you and I can then so easily consider relative to this matter of giving. As we've looked at Luke 6, verse 38, it brings us to a number of principles that might then easily be seen as it describes the matter of the contribution. You noticed it immediately on that previous verse. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12, God doesn't expect us to give beyond what we are physically able. He states that. Paul did especially to the Corinthians. And two verses later, he highlights the fact there is a principle of equality in effect. When those who have much give much, and those who, are, who have only little give little, there nonetheless is sufficient to provide for everyone the needful matters of the work of that congregation. It might be fair to conclude some of those statements at the top then. Our attitude is a vital part in our giving, isn't it? Paul had to belabor that point in 2 Corinthians 9. He spoke to them with such impressive force by saying, not of necessity, but rather, not grudgingly either, but give cheerfully, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Are you and I happy and excited about the opportunity that's ours to give as we've been prospered? That kind of opportunity will be presented shortly. As that opportunity is presented, may we then think about the disbursement of our own funds. Do you and I then spend 20 times what we give to God on our own entertainment? Do I spend 10 times what I give to God on my own recreation? If so, are my priorities fully in order? I'm not saying that I or you personally are in position to ultimately make those judgments. For again, every person has to make that determination. But if God has been so good to me, He allowed His Son to die on the cross for me. He paid the price for my sins and He allows me to call Him Father. Am I doing right by giving Him pittance of what He has given me? It should be a reflection, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, of a statement like this one. It may well be the case that our collection is a reflection of our divine connection. How strongly are you and I connected to God? Our giving likely will reflect the respect we have for what He's done for us. It might be then one final statement. The church, it seems, has appreciated all throughout her existence the blessedness of that opportunity to give. 
We noted the text earlier, but it's worthwhile to do it again in Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Several of the elements of worship are found in that one verse. And the word fellowship, interestingly enough in the Greek, actually has a portion that even has reference to giving. They gave from that first day onward. No wonder then, as you and I have looked today at these two elements of worship, the list has not been exhausted. We shall look next Sunday as we continue a study of the elements of worship. But as we close this one, I would leave you with this one final thought. Today, we've looked particularly at the element of prayer and the element of the contribution, finding each one to have a very exalted statement in Scripture. And as we've studied them, it could well be with giving those five words that I chose to summarize seemingly are appropriate. Our giving is to be given periodically on the first day of the week. Personally, as every, each of us has prospered, proportionately in the degree of that prospering, preventively for again the work of the church, and finally purposeful to carry out those efforts. I would ask each of us then at this point, where do you stand with God? Is your worship acceptable? Is mine? If it isn't, make sure it is before you leave the building today so that your worship, your prayer, your other attributes could be found acceptable, pleasing, and honorable to Him. This very day, there might be someone in the audience that's never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Though you've heard lessons, you've heard Bible studies, you've even been involved in them, but perhaps to this point you have simply decided that another day will be better, that a convenient day would be always a better one than this one. Let me help you say, I hope, that there will never, ever be a more convenient day than this one. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts, Hebrews 3, 12. Today, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, Realize that you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. Those statements, are again, are simply a part of the New Testament plan of salvation. If you have attended to those needs, but you have allowed worship to become humdrum, less than meaningful, perhaps almost traditional ritual, you need to have your worship experience again infused with what the New Testament teaches. And you need to come back to God for the problem lays in your heart. You realize that you need to come back. And if we could help you do that publicly, we'd be happy to pray with you. We'd be happy to pray to God on your behalf. If today you have needs along either of those lines, why not come forward and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing?